Hey, Bankless Nation, welcome to another State of the Nation episode. This is the episode where we update you on something relevant going on in crypto. We do a deep dive today. We're super excited to talk about the 2022 theses brought to you by Masari. We've got Ryan Selkis on. David, I love this time of year because uh, it's it's a time of reflection, right? You finally get to like take a deep breath and look at the past 12 months, all of the craziness that happened. We always joke and we say like one year is like 10 in uh, one year in crypto is like 10 in the regular world. And so December, late December in particular is a time to kind of reflect. And that's what we're doing with Ryan Selkis. He wrote this fantastic theses. He's written this every year since I've been in crypto. I've read these front to back every single year. This year is no exception. Uh, and we're going to dive into it with him. David, uh, what, what are some of your thoughts coming into this conversation? And it's just a, it's a ceremonious time at this point. The consistency and robustness of Ryan Selkis's uh, theses is, is just always something that the industry collectively points its attention towards at the end of the year. And it's just, it's a nice way to end the year. So I definitely appreciate Ryan taking so much time out of his just daily life. I think he said uh, something like 10% of his yearly labor goes into writing these theses. Uh, and it's just a nice way to like recap the, the year, especially when crypto moves so fast. Like some of these things in, that are in the, the theses for 2022, You'll, you'll forget that he, the context started in, in like this year, right? Like uh, so many things happen in crypto. It's just a nice way to wrap up the year and kind of understand it holistically uh, to really get that context before we move into what is probably going to be another crazy year in crypto in 2022. So absolutely. So we're going to dive into that with Ryan. We're going to recap the year, extrapolate on what's coming next year and have a conversation about how this all plays out. David, we've got some predictions of our own coming to Bankless. That is going to be published in the Bankless newsletter next week. So stay tuned. It's definitely not as robust as Ryan Selkis' theses, but we've got some ideas, some predictions, and kind of a recap that we're doing. So check that out on the Bankless newsletter. That's newsletter.banklesshq.com to subscribe. Also, David, got to talk about MetaMask. Uh, we had Ledger on the podcast this morning, actually on our YouTube show. We're talking a lot about this MetaPass plus Ledger partnership. And I know MetaMask wanted us to tell the bankless community that it is doing big things when it comes to hardware wallet support. You want to talk a little bit about that, David? Yeah, brand new to support with MetaMask is the Lattice One, which is what I've been calling like the Fort Knox of crypto wallets. Uh, it's a it's a, a desktop type thing. It's a kind of you would put it next to your Amazon Alexa or your your uh, whatever your home smart lady person is, uh, and it just stays physically in your home and it's super super secure, super tamper resistant, and that is now supported by MetaMask along with um, uh, other hardware wallets as well. There's the Keystone, which is an air gapped QR code wallet bunch of hardware wallet support coming to, to metamask as well as them ironing out the the issues with chromium uh so overall the user experience is uh getting new get, getting into new heights thankfully and we've all been waiting for that so uh taps off to metamask if you have not downloaded metamask what are you doing go to metamask.io slash download and get that installed in your browser Absolutely. And don't forget to use uh, use protection with your MetaMask wallet, right? It's hardware protection. Uh, you don't want to save those private keys in software. That's for sure. Uh, David, let's start with the question I ask you at the beginning of every single state of the nation. That is this. What is the state of the nation today, sir? The state of the nation today is reflecting. It was such a long year in crypto. And I think if we go and zoom all the way back, back to Q1, people will forget 
how recent some of these things that we are going to talk about actually happened. Uh, so much happened in 2021. I think it was it was the year that crypto people really, really wanted to see. Uh, high, super high inflation pushed people into the concept of digital scarcity. Uh, you know, just poor performance by banks, pushing people to go more bankless, uh, you know, capture and in my mind, corruption of Web2 platforms, pushing people into the world of Web3. It's kind of the year that we all dreamt of as crypto people going into it. Uh, and so uh, it's just a nice time to sit back and reflect. Uh, and so we shall go ahead and get right into those reflections with Ryan Selkis, uh, right after a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. The era of proof of stake is upon us. Proof-of-stake systems like Ethereum, Terra, and Solana allow the industry to move away from the hot, loud, and wasteful proof-of-work systems and return back to a cottage industry of individual stakers and individual validators. And that is what we need to make this industry stay decentralized. Individuals must play their part in crypto network validation. And that is what Lido is here to do. Lido makes staking accessible to everyone at the click of a button. By delegating your stake to Lido's network of nodes, you can access the yield offered by proof-of-stake systems and claim your share of the network transaction rewards. Do you have 32 ETH and want to stake it to Ethereum, but running a node sounds intimidating? Or maybe you have less than 32 ETH and you need to pool your ETH with others so you can access staking yields. Lido offers a solution for both. Simply go to lido.fi, choose which assets you want to stake, and deposit them to the Lido validating network. Lido is working to make sure proof of stake stays as decentralized as possible and is committed to decentralizing its own validating network to eventually become a completely permissionless protocol. So if you want to stake your ETH, Terra, or Sol and get liquidity on your stake, go to Lido.fi to get started. Hey guys, we are back here with Ryan Selkis, the founder of Masari. Ryan has been writing a year-end crypto theses for as long as I can remember in crypto, at least four years, maybe longer. It's become something of a ceremony at this point, something I read every year. I like that it's objective, right? And it's got a lot of the takes that Ryan and the team at Masari have been compiling throughout the year. We pulled out some of those themes. We're going to discuss them today with Ryan. You've seen him on the podcast before. I think uh, last had you on in August. Welcome back, Ryan Selkis. It's always a pleasure. Excited to be back. Hey, you, you guys brought are us a lot. For punishment. Yeah. Well, you know what? You you brought us some material. You brought us a lot. How many pages is this? Uh, is this thesis, Ryan? It's like a hundred and five. It's 165, but that's including all of the 
uh, table of contents and everything. So yeah, that, that's cheating. I, I don't know. I mean, if this was book form, yeah, this is uh, this is PDF form. So there's a lot of words per page. So this is uh, this is basically a full book. I didn't do the full word count, but it's it's hefty. Yeah, it's definitely hefty. And as a content producer in this space, like uh, co- color us impressed. This is a lot of work that went into this, and this is a synthesis of I think a lot of ideas, a lot of things that, uh, that went on in 2021. Uh, and I think that's maybe where we'll start is sort of a lot of this is going to be kind of a, a recap of things and extrapolation moving forward, but let's start with, um, I guess the first page of substance in the thesis. And that is this idea of the collapse of institutional trust. That's the titling that that's the title heading. It's got this very compelling graphic. It's like a quadrant based graphic, uh, and the axes are from ethical to unethical, less competent to competent, and it maps different, I guess, institutions on the score. And you see government, and this is from, uh, it, you know, I guess the way the people see these sorts of institutions. Government is, to, to many people, in the bottom left quadrant of being very incompetent and not not very ethical as You don't well. want to be in that quadrant. That's the bad yeah, quadrant. Yeah, it's the quadrant of pain, quadrant of doom, where you're like incompetent and unethical media is there too. We see some other institutions, traditional institutions like NGOs and businesses. Businesses are maybe a little unethical, but the perception, wide perception is that they are also more competent than, than government. But I think this entire section speaks to the collapse of institutional trust that we've seen. Can you talk a little bit about that trend? Was like 2021 the year that we lost trust in our institutions? Well, I, I mean, I think this has been building for a very long time. Uh, and I don't think mistrust in government is anything new uh, in the West. If, if you look at kind of Congress's approval rating for decades now, um, it's been a slow and steady decline. If you think about kind of trust in media, I'd say the same thing. It, it's gotten increasingly bifurcated between um, just extensions of, of, you know, the Democratic and, and Republican Party, depending on which source you're, you're, you're looking at. So I don't think those are new. I think what is interesting is the fact that NGOs and business uh, are also not included in that upper right quadrant, which is ethical and competent. And one of the things, by the way, I think Andreessen Horowitz's entire presentation that they prepared for policymakers uh, called How to Win the Future, and that is linked to right below this graphic. I think it's a terrific plain English explanation for someone that's trying to grapple with the challenges of um, of crypto and, and think about the potential that it has for good and, and you know, moving some of these institutions both into the competent uh, and ethical spectrum. I think it really comes down to incentive alignment between users employees, owners, and, and, and basically all the stakeholders within an organization, regardless of how it's structured. Um, and then ultimately, you know, if you can encode values in, into those businesses or protocols, uh, then, then you can actually have something that's viewed as ethical as well. So both effective, efficient, and you know, kind of incentive aligned, I think is, is an important thing that crypto brings to the table. And we're starting to see that, you know, in terms of first with money, right? You remove money from the government, 
uh, because they're the least competent and least ethical. Um, I think we've seen a lot in decentralized media that's not necessarily crypto related, maybe crypto adjacent, where you've seen a progressive decentralization of media, the rise in podcasts, the rise in Substack and Medium, and of course, Twitter being you know, one of the originals and social media in general, its impact on, on the mainstream media. Um, I think with DAOs, you're starting to see what we might be able to do with um, NGOs and, and bringing you know, public goods into a more competent management structure. That's arguable, of course, because of how nascent the tools are with, within crypto. Um, and then obviously, you know, business, I would argue, um, yes, they're competent. I think that the reason that they're viewed maybe as unethical is, is less about their um, them being evil and more about incentive misalignment. And that's what I think we get really excited about in terms of how Web Web three could could fix some of those issues with incentive alignment in terms of you know, the end users and, and end customers of these businesses. So um, you know, first off, you know, I, I'd say you know, hopefully you can read it or at least skim some of the thesis. Um, but I think A sixteen Z, you know, this this is kind of required reading for anyone that's going from zero to one on like why Bitcoin, why Web three period that has no prior knowledge and and is you know just trying to grapple with the why, not necessarily like all of the specifics of how this Wild West is operating. And for the podcast listeners out there, it's really important to know that the there's, again, four, four quadrants, ethical to unethical, less competent to competent. The competent and ethical quadrant is empty. There's nothing there. And this is, a, <laughs> this is a, again, a perception of the people that, that took this survey. Uh, and the people are saying that they do not see both a, an ethical and uh, something that is simultaneously both ethical and competent out there. They can't find anything, any institution out there that they view to be both good and and, and uh, actually good at being good. Uh, and, and so Ryan, and this, go ahead. Yeah, and, and this was Edelman that ran the survey. This was not an internal A16Z survey. Okay. This is just kind of cited from their from their presentation. So it is an independent survey mm-hmm. um, that uh, that had you know, quite a bit of uh, foolproof uh, and, you know, kind of stress testing and, and, and kind of established, you know, survey methodology, not just something that's kind of crypto native. And, uh, you put this as, this is your first big point in a, a, in a document that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are going to read. So you wanted to put this very, very first as in letting everyone know that no one, no one really thinks of any other institution out there that can be good and also be good at being good. And then you also added in the second thesis, which I think we want to go to now, uh, saying that crypto and Web3 is inevitable. Uh, and uh, so is, is the idea here is that like crypto and Web3 is going to hope, the idea is hopefully that they fill the missing niche, fill the missing quadrant of both good and ethical uh, uh, institutions out there. Can you, and you elaborated it on a little bit, but can you just keep on going is why, why, what about crypto and what about Web3 is really doing a good job or hopefully aspiring to fill that, that ethical and competent niche? I think it's a little bit too early to say that we're going to fill that quadrant when it comes to public perception. But the point of number one is to show that crypto doesn't explode in a vacuum. Right? There, there is a reason that something like crypto can take off and, and it has oxygen. So all the developments, all of the you know, institutional capital, that's basically you know fire and and the early kindling but at the end of the day it needs oxygen it needs end, end users and i think number one is really about how do you fan the flames 
um, once the fire is, is started, which we've seen you know, kind of over the, the last 10 years, that infrastructure is, has been built, the zero to one innovations in Bitcoin, in Ethereum, in DeFi, in non-fungible token ownership and digital assets ownership, um, and, and now you know, some other kind of emerging areas like, uh, like decentralized social media, uh, you, you have the MVPs. But the only way that those MVP actually catch fire and, and, and become something that can really eat large swaths of the economy or, or you know, our society in general is, uh, is if something else is broken out of the incumbent uh, system. Uh, I do think it's a, a good pairing. And, and I think the, the reason I'd say that uh, crypto is inevitable at this point, it um, it's really comes down to the fact that there's many different uh, avenues that people can take if they're if they want to participate in crypto, and in some cases, you know, we're getting closer to that state of the world where they might not necessarily know or care that they're actually using crypto as as rails. Right. Um, the important thing is that uh, we've got, you know aligned end user incentives, and you know for many of these networks, the end users are also the owners and governors. Um, so uh, that comes with it, you know, financial incentives. There are, you know, governance rights and, and basically a say in, in how things are managed. And I think that's a, a pretty transformative zero to one understanding that, that people are going to like. At some point, you know, everybody talks in, in crypto about going down the rabbit hole and having the, uh, the the red pill moment, right? When did you get red red pilled, or, or when did you fall down the rabbit hole? And and it really is like something that clicks. Sometimes it takes a little while. Sometimes, you know, I don't really understand Bitcoin or I don't understand ETH because it's kind of turtles all the way down or, I don't, you know, DeFi, there's no real economic activity there. But then someone will look at, you know, an NFT and say, okay, digital art and provenance, I believe that we're spending more of our time online. So I believe that like some provable digital scarcity for a painting or an avatar, that's going to be relatively easy to enforce. And I can see that being important. A Wall Street type might have gone from zero to one on DeFi, right? Because now there's all the stablecoin infrastructure, and I understand, you know, I understand yield farming because there's some, you know, uh, favorable economics in terms of lending, or in terms of decentralized exchange, you know, kind of market maker earnings. But also because you're early, you're you're basically getting you know, effectively equity um, in some of these uh, emerging protocols. I, I think for everybody, it's a little bit different, and. Um, the fact that there's so many discrete sectors now that have all crossed the chasm and there's so much institutional capital that's been raised to deploy into the next round of infrastructure and also to potentially backstop some catastrophic kind of market breakdown that, that we might see in, in you know, the next you know, six to 12 months. I think it's a, a good you know, one-two combination that um, might prevent the uh, the industry from from taking you know basically years off or, or, or years where we're sucking wind. That's not to say the prices won't correct. I, I think that's you know that's overblown. That hey we're never going to see a bear market again. <laughs> but um, there's a difference between a bear market in token prices and a bear market where teams fire fifty percent of their of their workforce right or eighty percent of their workforce just because the token prices went down. Um, and when you when you take that into consideration, you take the five year play into consideration, and then you you just see the the talent that's entering the market day in day out. It's hard to bet against that, um, and I, I think it's unwise to bet against that. 
Is this the first time you would say something, you would use that phrase, Ryan, this is the first inevitable. year that inevitable, right? Because I, you know, look, mm -hmm. some, some believers would have used this phrase in, you know, 2012 and just said, hey, look, Bitcoin is inevitable, right? Um, but mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm wondering if this year was unique from your perspective in crypto's ability to hit uh, escape velocity. I would say so. So everybody should panic because maybe that's a sign of the market top uh, and, and, and things are going to completely unravel all, all throughout next year. I, I would say inevitable with the one important caveat that crypto's success and medium-term viability depends on some measured proportionate response from Western regulators. Hmm. And I do go into it later in the report, and I know we'll probably talk about it, but I, I think as the US goes, so goes crypto in, in the medium term. Um, I think uh, Bitcoin is, is kind of in, in its own completely different universe right now. I think um, Ethereum is the highest potential asset out there, but it's also still not without risk. Um, and I think that you know, where I disagree with you guys on, on kind of the ETH is money stuff as we've, we've gone over in, in prior podcasts, um, I don't view its success as inevitable um, from a, a regulatory perspective, just because so much of the activity that rides Ethereum's rails is in the crosshairs throughout the West right now. So in the worst case scenarios, which I think fortunately we're starting to, to dial back from, but in the worst case scenarios, the, um, the layer one networks um, and all the applications, I, I think are, are, are those that are most at risk. So... Um, the question remains is, you know, have we gotten too big as a community to uh, basically force into non-existence? And I think we're close. I, I, I think 2022 will be interesting to see if there is a, a large sellout, sell off and, and we have a, a bear market on par with, with 2018. Do we lose all of our user momentum? And then does that kind of turn the tide of public opinion? So you know, people start clamoring for regulation or, or, or basically don't really care to, to fight you know, for crypto. Um, basically the, the polar opposite of what we saw this summer, right? So how much, how much of the outcry this summer uh, will persist in a 80% down market? Um, I think that's the one thing that, um, that I'm still keeping an eye on. Last thing before we move from this idea of institutional distrust and crypto kind of occupying this upper right quadrant of ethical and incompetent, because I think that's a really core thesis. But you, you also said this, and this is maybe one of your first uh, predictions in the report is, and you're talking about inflation. Inflation, the money system, the dollar being an institution in and of itself, right? You said this, things will get worse before they get better in the real world. Inflation will remain above 5% throughout 2022, above 5%, we're at 6.8% now. While late year interest rate hikes uh, stall the stock market's momentum and hurt growth stocks. It's an interesting prediction. Uh, this is good for crypto in the short term, but risky in the medium term, as more crypto companies than users get deplatformed and censorship from Western tech and banking platforms accelerates admits the Biden administration's crypto crackdown. So a few predictions you're starting to, to make here is that we're going to have persistent inflation, not transitory inflation, persistent inflation next year. Uh, that will lead to the Fed raising interest rates, which will lead to some decrease in the stock market momentum. All of this might be good short term for crypto, but then you also see sort of a 
a crypto unfriendly Biden administration executive branch kind of cracking down. Anything you want to say about uh, these predictions before we move on? I think the only thing that I would note is that we're recording this on December 14th. And keep in mind that this was written, you know, pencils down about a month ago uh, and it was published uh, a, a couple of weeks ago now. So, uh, so this happened, you know, I think it was written at, you know, Bitcoin at, 65,000 or, or, or so, and then, you know, find a fully polished and edited when, when we were at 58. So we've already kind of seen a 20% correction and we've seen a correction in the S&P and, and, and we've seen, you know, a bit more fear in the market um, along with, you know, some of these uh, CPI prints that, that were way ahead of forecast. So um, I think, you know, some of this is already starting to hold up well. Um, and, you know, the question is always, you know, from what what height do you fall, or or you know, from uh, from what floor do you rally? Uh, so I, I think I don't really have a directional sense of of where the stock market or, or where crypto is going, but there are you know a few different scenarios. And at this point, I would say most of crypto's momentum is going to be tied to the stock market, um, unless we start to see some really um, nasty inflation and uh, there's you know, kind of a, a breakdown in, in the narrative of, of you know, Bitcoin in particular and, and to a lesser extent ETH as a risk on asset. And instead, you know, the inflation hedge narrative really does take hold and people start to you know, flood to Bitcoin and, and ETH as, as kind of safe assets. The last narrative that we want to touch on in this uh, section of the, the narratives to watch is um, uh, on page 11, Ryan, where Ryan, you said, uh, <laughs> Ryan Selkis, Ryan Sean Adams, Ryan Selkis, you said that uh, this is the cycle where crypto use cases unrelated to Bitcoin were finally validated and achieved meaningful adoption. And for those that came into crypto in 2020 or 2021, this this narrative, this take might not land with them as much as some of the old timers. Can you just unpack the significance for people that may have come just recently into the industry? What, why is uh, use cases unrelated to Bitcoin finally being validated and adopted? Adopted? Why is that a big deal? I think it happened to a lesser extent in 2017 as well with the ICO boom. Um, you know, ETH became the reserve currency for uh, all the new tokens that were, were raising capital, right? All the RC20s. Um, I think this year it's a little bit different because last year was all about the macro trade. Paul Tudor Jones getting in, Michael Saylor getting in, uh, you know, and, and kind of corporates and, and nation states alike. Think about Bitcoin as a store of value and something that would... Um, be a, uh, a hedge on the fact that 40% of the dollars uh, that have ever been you know, put into existence were, were printed in the last you know, year and a half. And if you look at the kind of throughput on the Ethereum blockchain and all the demand last summer for DeFi, and then you know, this year for NFTs, and uh, what we're, I think, starting to see in gaming, it's, it's now not imperative that anyone comes through Bitcoin in order to get their first crypto exposure, right? You know, you could go on OpenSea and not really even understand that you're using ETH. You might just want to buy, you know, digital art, but you're going to create an Ethereum wallet in order to, you know, custody that. Um, and I think that's a pretty big change. Now, the question becomes, um, and I'm particularly interested to see how Coinbase handles it when, when they roll out their NFT marketplace. Um, will the same thing happen with NFTs that happened previously with ERC20 tokens and with DeFi, where ultimately 
everything gets dollarized, right? Everything ties back to stable coins and the volatile cryptos are basically abstracted from, from the process. Um, I think that's probably likely because most normal people are not going to denominate JPEGs and ETH, um, but we'll see. Uh, the important um, thing is, is that the use cases that I think have really uh, gotten people excited are not tied to Bitcoin, the asset. Now you can argue that Bitcoin is going to be bridged to other uh, other blockchains and, and you'll you'll have like a settlement layer that is the Bitcoin blockchain, but ultimately you'll have Bitcoin equivalents trading on, on all other sorts of, of you know, layer one and layer twos. Um, I think uh, that's kind of a coin flip for me, whether that actually takes hold or, or whether we see a proliferation of, of a, a number of other like layer one assets that kind of almost represent the GDP as I've heard referred to uh, from, from, from some folks. Uh, of those native chains. Um, and I think that's, you know, that, that there's pros and cons um, to that happening for Ethereum, right? Because, uh, you know, in, in Ethereum's case, it's got to ward off all these other layer ones. And then you have a question of how much value for Ethereum-based settlement goes to the primary chain versus all the other layer twos that are securing all these set of transactions. Um, so there's, uh, I, I think, this is probably the, the greatest environment that you could imagine for an activist specialist crypto investor, um, particularly on, on the kind of liquid side of things, because things are so fluid and there is such um, you know, incredible information asymmetry. Um, I would imagine um, you know, next year is going to be a good time for, for folks like that. Uh, this year was already a great year for that, but I'd say for, for like the smart fundamental oriented speculator, next year is probably going to be even better. And it's because of this theme where uh, cryptos are decoupling. So everything isn't just moving completely in lockstep. Yeah. Do, do, would you go as far as to say, Ryan, that uh, 2021 kind of marked the death of Bitcoin maximalism? And what I mean by that is there was this idea that was kind of popularized after the 2017 sort of crash, right? Hype crash, ICO mania, craziness, everything sort of died off that, okay, we're back to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the only use case of this whole blockchain thing. See, we told you so. And that was very popular sentiment in 2018 and 2019. The purpose of blockchain is Bitcoin. That's kind of it. Now we've seen sort of a resurgence of, of lots of different use cases. DeFi took, took on life and NFTs and all of these things. So that, that old notion of Bitcoin maximalism, Bitcoin as the only use case, is that dead now? Do you think that's dead, gone, and buried? Or do you think it's going to come back at some point? I think any type of maximalism, uh, any type of coin maximalism, um, those are your incels, right? Um, anyone <laughs> that is just a like complete mercenary, you know, that's probably your more promiscuous types. And then you've got folks in between that are just really passionate about like the community that they're in for different reasons. They they could you know have, have terrific you know fundamentals driven reasons. Um, you know, those are the nice boys that you want to marry. So like, as long as, you know, as long as you don't go like too far down, you know, either side there, I, I think you, you want to split the uprights and, and look at the end of the day, these are investments. So I, I think it would be crazy to think that you're going to have um, people that are excited about crypto that are not also going to have intrinsic biases based on what they're holding, right? Because what they're holding usually matches where they're spending time, where they're spending time tends to match the network that they're building. So I think that only becomes a problem if um, 
if you are you know, over levered or, or kind of over indexed to, to one particular community and, and you're doing so blindly and, and essentially you know, writing off everything else. I think that's true for you know, Ethereum folks that just you know, think that Bitcoin is going to die. I think that's, that's true for you know, Bitcoin maximalists that you know, it's getting so tired just hearing that everything else is, is a scam when all the data is just, it, it, it just flies right in your face. And, and you can argue I think semantics about what constitutes crypto and decentralization, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a, a spectrum um, of networks and, and, and protocols and their underlying assets that are interesting to people for different reasons. And it's not always about decentralization. It's not always about money. It's not always about you know speed. Um, it, it, every, everybody's making different trade-offs. And I think that's true for the L1s. Uh, that's true for you know, the, the various layer twos that are going to connect into Ethereum or interoperate between other chains. Um, and it's, you know, it's arguably even true for like the meme coins, uh, like, like Doge and, and Shiba. That's just people going from GameStop into, you know, another fun community and, and kind of playing uh, a lottery like game where they don't really care about uh, what, what money is going in or, or, or what's happening on the way out. So they're just in it for the lulls. I, I think, um, I am anti-maximalist in all forms. So guys, that has been three of Ryan's top 10 narratives to watch in 2021 and 2022. Uh, there are, I believe, seven more in this section and also like six other sections. We're going to leave this section behind and go into uh, a new section, which is the top people to watch. Uh, and interestingly, top 10, top 10 people to watch. There's uh, a bunch of familiar names in here. Devin Finzer from OpenSea, Kyle Samani, CMS and Suzu, uh, uh, Jiho from Axie, Paradigm, uh, lots of familiar familiar names, also the beloved Hester Purse. But I wanted to touch on number one, which interestingly you have named the the person to watch in 2022 is we all going to make it, the slogan. Uh, and you say in the past, I've avoided the urge to give everyone a spot on the list. And so I think you're using the we all going to make it slogan as like a placeholder for just everyone to watch in 2022. Uh, because, and because you said it feels like a cop out to just say everyone It's a sign of a, a market top. Uh, but then you also say that uh, this we all going to make it slogan is is different than some of the slogans that the crypto community has chanted before. Uh, why is we all going to make it something to watch in 2022? What what about that slogan do you really, really like? Well, I like it because it's um, it, it's kind of a nice spin on uh, on something that Balaji uh, Srinivasan says that, that I like and I've kind of co-opted, which is the, the whole concept of win and help win. Um and it kind of speaks to the fact that crypto is not zero sum. And most of these applications, I think, will be successful in some form, whether the specific smart contract platform or the specific cross-chain bridge or the specific DEX, you know, is, is ultimately the winner is kind of beside the point. I think, you know, as a as a market, as a sector, um, there's uh, there's basically just un unlimited upside, right? Um, and the last 18 months kind of felt like that scene in Vegas vacation where like the, the sun comes out. It's like the very end of the movies. Like, you know, I put a quarter and I want a car, I put a quarter and I want a car, I put a quarter and I want, you know, like every single sector is kind of exploded at the same time. And, and the sequence I think mattered too, because a lot of them were building blocks for, for the rest. But um, the thing that I think makes this important to watch as a trend for next year is what happens when things start to go a little sideways, right? Do, do, does everyone ca catch their collective breath? Um, do we start to see 
actual, uh, you know, pretty intense wars break out or, or, you know, vampire attacks at scale or, or, you know, different, you know, kind of aggressive competitive tactics. Um, we'll see, but I, I, you know, we talked about like if killers for a long time and, um, we haven't really seen things get that aggressive. Instead, what you've seen is now Solana is a $60 billion network and now Polkadot's a $50 billion network and Terra is a $20 billion network and Avalanche is a $20 billion network. So, and at the same time, you know, ETH is half a trillion. So do you think that there's going to be a shuffling in market share? Probably, but does that mean that it's all going to be at the expense of Ethereum, right? Or that Ethereum's growth is going to be at the expense of Bitcoin? I don't, I don't know that that's the, the right way to look at it. Um, if anything, I'd say that's probably more true at the application layer level. Um, but you know, even then, it's, it's, it's difficult to imagine that decentralized lending platforms are not going to look like decentralized banks. Um, and I think that's true if for no other reason than there's going to be a new user group that feels left out of the early rewards that the incumbents were able to generate from using a specific decentralized lending protocol. So you'll basically have upstarts that get built out over time, maybe you know, sequentially or, or you know, uh, one per year or something like that until you have some equilibrium over time where there's 10 big decentralized banks, just like there are you know, 10 big you know, global banks. And of course, one will be the largest and, and you'll have a pecking order, but um, I don't think that those are, um, I don't think it's necessarily fixed. And watching everybody compete uh, next year will, will look more like the real business world and, and less like uh, the knives are out 2018, you're going to die or I'm going to die. So I'm going to stab you type of mentality that, that I think we, we kind of lived through uh, in the last bear market. My version of this trope is if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Uh, and, it's, and basically just saying, hey, we're all better together. Uh, and that, I think, is a great uh, segue into our next conversation, which is how China is not coming along with us. Uh, China is de-Bitcoinizing. Uh, it kicked out all of its Bitcoin hash power and overall is also following th uh, through with kicking out the rest of all crypto financial services. Uh, and you're saying that this is one of the big themes of 2021 was uh, what you are calling the great fall of China's Bitcoin industry. Uh, can you just talk about why you think that this is, this is so significant and what, what do you think this is going to mean for 2022 and beyond? I think this is huge on a few different axes. First and foremost, China was never going to embrace crypto. Um, like the, it, it's become a meme to insiders. China bans Bitcoin for the three hundredth time. It still gets picked up by the media, but I think most people that understand crypto and, and have followed the market know that there was never any chance that China was actually going to embrace decentralized protocols and, and, and decentralized finance. Um, that includes Bitcoin, Ethereum everything kind of straight on down. They're building their own in-house digital currency system and blockchain-based system in an attempt to replace the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And I think, honestly, if we keep shooting ourselves in the foot, they're probably going to win because they're the dominant trading partner with most countries in the world at this point. If they beat the US to uh, issuing a, a blockchain-based money at scale, and if they're basically able to gate um, 
privacy at the border, right? So like everything is surveilled within mainland China, but the yuan is, is somehow exportable and private um, internationally. So people get over the concern of, of the CCP basically surveilling every single transaction that happens you know, outside of, of their own you know, Chinese borders. Um, I think um, I think you know it, it's it's by far the kind of theme to watch. Uh, I think from a, a macro perspective in um, in 2022, but when it comes to crypto and, and decentralized currencies and assets, it was one of the greatest de-risking events of the year as well because it finally kind of put this narrative to to bed that you know what happens if China bans mining. Right? What happens if China seizes all the Bitcoin you know, within its borders or, or you know, shuts down all the speculation uh, domestically? And we saw exactly what happened. You know, there was a 50% sell-off um, in, uh, in you know, the couple months from, uh, from May to June. And, and of course, things got overheated. So this is only you know, one reason I think that the market's corrected so much over the summer. But um, it did uh, kind of clean the market out of, of any remaining speculation that that China was going to be a meaningful part or, or kind of meeting, meaningful source of demand um, for crypto. And at the same time, it uh, at once crippled two of the critics' greatest uh, concerns about uh, Bitcoin in particular. And that was, uh, number one, do we really want to be promoting an asset that is you know, dominated by China and, and ultimately is, is highly volatile and is going to be at the whims of the CCP if they ever do decide to shut it down. Well, they did shut it down. So we kind of saw what the what the aftermath looked like. Um, and then two was, you know, it, it is the fact that miners in proof of work systems um, predominantly sit behind the Great Firewall, a systemic threat to Bitcoin and Ethereum because you know, until the merge, Ethereum is still a proof of work currency, right? So I think, um, again, the uh, that security risk was put to bed. And then the 2A there is, uh, or 2B, I guess, all of the critics that kind of came out of the woodwork in like a two-week span in the spring that were concerned about, you know, Bitcoin's ESG narrative and, and Ethereum's kind of temporary ESG narrative and uh, an and impact on climate. That was basically completely put to bed because you know that the mix of energy that's being used in the West versus mainland China is predominantly clean. And so the mix is not only you know, not only got cleaner overnight, but it's going to progressively get cleaner for, for the longer that um, mining shifts to uh, to the Western countries and, and, and you know, different jurisdictions that are actually prioritizing clean energy. Um, so I think uh, I, I, I mean I don't really understand the the policy choice in general, particularly on the why, like why ban mining, but it's um, you know we'll, uh, we'll we'll see if they double back on it. I, I think it was one of the most important you know kind of macro events of the year that's positive for um, for crypto in the U.S. and, and Europe. Ryan, can we uh, maybe talk about um, how that relates to to America's opportunity, the U.S.'s opportunity here, right? There's, so there's got this section, I'll flip to it in a minute, um, called the American Battleground. And you said this, so just talked about China, but what is the U.S.'s opportunity? And it's almost like an opportunity for the, for the U.S. To, um, uh, to, you know, to lose if it does nothing. 
And you said this, the U.S. is either going to embrace crypto and win or ban crypto and disintegrate. Those are the two options. Embrace crypto and win or ban crypto and disintegrate. Let's talk about that. What did you mean by that? Well, I, I think we've got some real structural problems uh, in the U.S., particularly down in D.C., and, and we talk about federal leadership. But the at the end of the day, I think if China doesn't ban Bitcoin mining and we don't see the exodus of that um, that whole kind of subsector to the West, I doubt Ted Cruz, for instance, or you know, any of the um, American politicians really kind of picked this up um, as quickly as, as they did for two reasons. One, there's a real state level impact that the shift of mining resources from you know, Sichuan and, and mainland China to Texas, for instance, will have on that state's economy. And two, it's kind of a unifying narrative that, you know, whatever China does, we should do the opposite almost. That is, is maybe the, the gut reaction from politicians in DC. And I, I think uh, that was a, a powerful one-two punch. And it also, it doesn't take a lot to get momentum behind uh, different issues, particularly once a politician sees that it's popular, right? So you, you combine the timing of the Chinese mining ban with the infrastructure bill over the summer, and all of a sudden this becomes a bipartisan uh, movement that one side of the aisle, the Republicans, um, picked up on pretty quickly. And, and it was because they saw how much moderate and, uh, and left-leaning support they'd be able to, to get pretty much overnight by being on the right side of the issue. It's kind of a truism. Every single time a politician or, or some policymaker tweets or speaks favorably about crypto, good things happen uh, in terms of their you know, social media and, and, and their kind of public persona. Um, and the reverse is true, right? Uh, the those that are on the wrong side are, are you know, basically completely decimated. Their replies are, are ruined. Uh, they're they're memed out of existence, or, or you know, they're they're uh, basically penalized in the harshest way possible. They get attacked by the cyber uh, hornets. At least in terms yeah. of like social signaling. Mm -hmm. Yep. So um, I, I think you know the the steps uh, and and the kind of path to being taken seriously and having this become a really important issue, not only for Republicans, but I think for Democrats now in the last couple of months, um, I think that puts us in a good position because we can kind of paint this as something that is completely opposite and counter to China's approach, not only to tech, but, but specifically to um, uh, financial services and, and you know, reserve currencies. Um, and I think uh, you know, we'll, we'll be in a good place if we just have slightly lighter touch and we don't try to out China China when it comes to surveillance um, and, um, and the centralization of, of, of tech and tech development, which would be, I think, an unmitigated disaster um, for, uh, for anyone that's even anecdotally familiar with how DC operates and, and how up to speed they are uh, on the tech learning curve. Well, and so here's the thing, Ryan, is uh, you mentioned in your thesis that we do have some monsters in the closet here, right? And, um, you know, two of them are the FSOC, which is the Financial Services Oversight Council, with its 10 members, the Fed, CFTC, basic FDIC, OCC, all of our regulators, and then also the SEC dominance here. 
And so you contrast the FSOC and SEC, kind of are the, the primary, I guess, regulators that are taking a harsh stance on crypto versus the crypto coalition, right? Where we have our own uh, coalition that has started to form. I mean, Masari is doing great work here, but also uh, Coin Center, the Blockchain Association, the Crypto Council for Innovation, the A16Z policy team, the Chamber of Digital Commerce, even public goods like Gitcoin are giving to the cause. I would say the Bankless Nation has played a role in propagating messages and, and getting that sort of out there. So we've got some of these regulators who want a bit more control over crypto and are pushing back against the agenda that you just laid out versus the crypto coalition. Uh, you know, and, and David has talked about this as like, it's like we got chess pieces on the board, right? We got the, you know, the, the black versus the white here. And now the two sides are playing this epic game of, of crypto chess. Can you talk about those contrast points and who's well positioned going into 2022? Who's, who's well positioned uh, from a sector or from a uh, who, which, who which side of the team? I know who you're betting on and I know whose team you're on, but like, is the crypto side, are we still the underdogs or are we actually, you know, able to marshal <laughs> some strength against yeah, okay. um, yeah. the, this opposing coalition um, that has formed against us? Yeah. So I, I won't take for granted that, that uh, all your listeners are going to read the report and then listen to this as, as kind of a follow-up. So I'll, I'll try to quickly go through um, who the, the players are. And I think you did, did a good job as a starting point. Um, but the only thing I would add is like, who's actually taking the ball here, right? Um, so historically out of uh, FSOC, which is very important um, structurally, that, that basically they're, they're responsible for maintaining the stability of the financial system and averting another 2008 like financial crisis, right? FSOC was created as, you know, kind of a, a supra, um, uh, regulatory agency that was going to align all those members that you just mentioned um, and try to identify systemically important institutions um, with uh, with the passage of Dodd Frank. So this is um, you know, what they do is not trivial, and if they identify something as systemically important and you know basically worthy of, of cross-agency coordination, then it gets addressed and, and they have, you know, kind of sweeping mandate to um, uh, to take on those challenges. Uh, now, we we had a, I'd say an across the board downgrade in uh, leadership across FSOC uh, in the transition of the Biden administration. Uh, Brian Brooks, who is the former head of the OCC, um, he was chief legal officer at Coinbase, and then he went to Binance US. Now he's at Bitfury and, and just was a I think a rock star uh, in his testimony last week, even um, when uh, when uh, some of the crypto executives took the hill and, and it was probably the friendliest uh, hearing that I think we've seen to date in the House. Um, but um, he's obviously no longer there. Uh, we almost had a replacement that was an avowed communist. And fortunately, crypto and Wall Street were able to agree that um, Amarova, the, who was uh, the woman who was up for nomination, uh, was just completely unpalatable and, and kind of uh, un unworkable as uh, a regulatory head um, for the economy that commands the largest financial system in the world. So crisis narrowly averted. Um, crisis narrowly averted with uh, Jerome Powell getting reappointed instead of someone like uh, Brainerd at the Fed, who's uh, much more uh, critical and, and I think um, cynical about Bitcoin and, and crypto and its position in the financial system. 
Um, and then, uh, you know, you've got uh, other agencies like the FDIC, who's, you know, traditionally been you know, favorable, and then CFTC has been tr uh, traditionally favorable uh, with, with crypto. So it kind of leaves two um, that are most important. And there's a handful of others like, you know, insurance agencies and like federal housing and stuff. So they're not really as relevant to crypto. But the other two that are relevant are Treasury and SEC. Um, and, you know, in the Treasury, uh, it's important for people to remember that during this infrastructure bill, it was Janet Yellen who explicitly pushed back on the amendments that were proposed by the crypto industry, right? So there was this bipartisan coalition of senators that got together <clears throat> and said, you know, we need to clarify this broker language. And, you know, we know what the intention is, or we think we know the, what the intention is. This is supposed to apply to groups like Coinbase, for instance. And I don't think there's any debate there. You know, they've apl even applied for broker-dealer licenses. They look and feel and, and act like that. So, of course, this makes sense. Um, and Treasury pushed back on um, the exclusion of DeFi and, and individuals and, and kind of modifications to the language. And, of course, that's now law of the land. Um, so you understand that they do want a broad brush uh, and, and sweeping authority and flexibility um, on their end to, um, to, to regulate, you know, things like DeFi and, and stable coins and, um, and, and everything that isn't necessarily just trading on Coinbase or Kraken, right? So that's number one. Now, the issue is that the person that Treasury is also delegating to the most is the SEC and Chair Gensler is, of course, you know, openly hostile to, um, to the entire crypto industry. Um, and uh, I've obviously, you know, had many different things to say about Chair Gensler, but it's strategic and I think there's a reason for it. I think he's an enemy to the industry. I think he's on the wrong side of the, uh, of the issue. And I think he's been dishonest and he's acted in bad faith pretty much at every step along the way. Um, and what's most concerning is he knows better because he does understand how crypto works. Uh, he did teach about it at MIT. He knows how Washington works because this is not his first rodeo as a regulator. Um, and, uh, if you think about him as a political animal that's essentially you know, doing whatever he can to continue to advance his career, uh, it gets even worse because you know that Janet Yellen was uh, on the side of keeping the broker language as written in the broker uh, debate over the summer and the infrastructure bill debate over the summer. Um, and you know that Elizabeth Warren, who's arguably the most powerful Democrat that's anti-crypto right now, is uh, basically coordinating with, with him and uh, and and you know they're giving each other alley oops during different hearings uh, in in terms of how crypto should be regulated and what authority the SEC should have uh, over uh, over the, the token economy. So uh, that's where the attention is now. Now that sounds really negative, but there is kind of one silver lining here, and you know this is not really a red or blue thing. But I think um, Biden's approval rating, being where it is, um, has been maybe one of the primary uh, reasons that things are starting to get a little bit better and the rhetoric is starting to get dialed back. If you look just kind of month over month or quarter over quarter, the difference in rhetoric on the left versus like what we saw last week in the House Financial Services hearing, which was probably the best hearing that, that I think the industry has ever had and, and the most thoughtful and, and kind of engaging with, you know, Brad Sherman aside, who's always been a clown. Um, but I don't think that happens if um, if the Democrats don't watch what just happened with a couple of governor races 
uh, and they are petrified of what I think is going to be a, uh, a catastrophic series of losses in the midterms. Why would you continue to go on the offensive to an entire community of young and I think majority progressive um, builders that that constitute crypto, right? We always talk about crypto being pre-political or bipartisan or, or whatever. And um, one way to turn that against you is to attack, attack, attack a bunch of progressive leaning um, voters and builders and, and call them uh, things like tax evaders and, and you know, shadowy sympathizers with terrorists and shadowy supercoders and, you know, all, all that. Um, that's, you know, politically red pilling people uh, at scale is, is, is a pretty dangerous game. And so I think the politicians between the kickback over the summer and then kind of the declining poll uh, ratings and kind of what they've seen in terms of pushback to some of the more liberal potential appointees, all of that seems like the worst might be over in general. Now it's just about this kind of targeted issue that we have with, uh, with, with Chair Gensler at the SEC. That was long-winded, but I think it's, you know, there, there's a lot to unpack there and, and, are, and a lot to understand. So that's like that side of things, right? But are you seeing mm -hmm. as well the crypto side getting stronger in the face of this as well? Like are crypto's political forces, lobbying, organizational forces strengthening? Uh, you know, how would you evaluate that so far? Yeah, I, I think they're... Uh, they're definitely strengthening. I mean, there, there's a heck of a lot more money going into it. Um, I know uh, for a while, you know, CCI, the, the Crypto Council, which is one of the newer uh, trade associations, it was basically just the corporates and, and the entities that were backing it. It didn't actually have a staff, right? I, I believe that's that's changed only very recently in terms of having some leadership in place. Um, the blockchain association was a handful of people at the beginning of the year, right? They're adding headcount and obviously they've added a number of new members. Coin Center is, uh, I have to imagine, is at a record year in terms of donations. Um, and every single major crypto company is, is starting to think seriously about policy and, and how they're engaging and, and you know, what role they're playing either with the trade associations or, or, um, or you know, kind of direct engagement. Um, and I also think you are going to start to see more super PACs and PACs formed that um, get more active in, in electoral politics, right? So there's a lot of lobbying money that's coming in off the sidelines um, because people are, are finally awake to it. So, that, you know, almost the best case scenario that I think could happen is like the summer scared everybody. A ton of money is now going into this, but tensions are getting dialed back at least a little bit. So we've got this narrow window where I think we can make some real progress over the course of the next couple of years. But remember, DC does not move in crypto uh, at crypto speed, right? So this is going to play out from now through you know, 2030, really, but certainly through the end of, of Biden's first term. And um, it doesn't really matter what happens in the midterms. I, I, I think you know, even if, if Republicans take, uh, take control of the House and Senate, um, you still have the leadership in place that you have at the SEC uh, and, and Treasury potentially. So there's there's a lot that's going to be um, that's going to have to play out on you know kind of legal side in terms of court challenges, on the you know electoral side uh, in terms of getting pro crypto candidates through primaries and 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 actually into Congress so that you have more knowledgeable people um, that can even think about crafting sane policy. 
Um, and then, of course, you know, court of public opinion, which is really the only way that you're going to see um, any type of movement on the on the regulatory side because they're unelected positions. They're appointed, and um, the person that appoints them is is still got three years uh, in in his term. I think we are going to see a lot of progress on this front in 2022. I think that the battle in the in Capitol Hill is only getting started. Ryan, there's a number of other topics that we want to get into, such as NFTs. NFTs had a blow up year in 2021. Also, Ethereum's Q3 earnings report and also layer one, alternative layer one relative valuations, as well as the Solana summer. And then. Ryan, you have said that the Bankless Boys were right for the wrong reasons when it came to Ether. So we definitely want to unpack that as well. But first, before we get to all those conversations, we want to take a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make the show possible. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their earn program where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at Gemini.com slash GoBankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at Gemini.com slash GoBankless. The Aave protocol is a decentralized liquidity protocol on Ethereum, which allows users to supply and borrow certain crypto assets. Aave version 2 has a ton of cool features that makes using the Aave protocol even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi money Legos, yield, and composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can supply to the protocol in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have supplied collateral. Here you can see me borrowing 200 USDC against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens in ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock in that interest rate in permanently. V2 also features the ability for users to swap collateral without having to withdraw their assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. With Aave, users can do this in one seamless transaction, saving you time and gas costs. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Hey guys, we are back with Ryan Selkis going through the crypto theses for 2022. We got to start here, okay? So like, uh, as we come back, um, let's talk about NFTs. It, NFTs had an absolutely like blowout year. I feel like it was almost maybe the year of NFTs. And I'm wondering if you would go so far as to say this, but this is your entire section on NFTs and Web3 plumbing. It's got things like a 69 million dollar mona lisa jpeg That's which the sold, i remember that as the beeple thing 
uh, NFTs as a, you know, defining them. PFPs, that whole thing, punks versus apes, those went mainstream. We have fan tokens. We have this loot phenomenon, a bottom-up game. Axie Infinity had this crazy amazing year where they went from like 30 million market cap to $8 billion market cap. That doesn't happen anywhere else except crypto. Uh, we saw the financialization of NFTs, OpenSea, absolutely crushing it in real numbers, like revenue. This is like an incredible year for OpenSea. Uh, the cryptoverse, metaverse became a, a, a phrase that jumped into popular vernacular. Facebook even changed their whole name to meta as partially as a result of this. Uh, Non-fungible credentials, you talk about namespaces, you know, the .eth and ENS went um, uh, did, did sort of a, a token drop as well. There's so much more we can talk about with respect to NFTs and your theses do that. Uh, so can I ask you this question? Is it is it fair to call 2021 the year of NFTs? Were they the big breakout use case for crypto in your mind? Uh, certainly one of two. Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I would argue that it was the year of NFTs. It's tough to overlook layer ones uh, outside of Ethereum and, and kind of how, how much demand there was for block space period. But NFTs were, were one of the largest drivers of that for sure. So I think um, I think that's right. And for for me, it was always difficult thinking about how NFTs would cross the chasm. It, I was definitely surprised by how fast uh, and furious that the rally was, and, and how fast they came into vogue this year. Because uh, if you think about it, you know people. I think in, in the mainstream associate NFTs with images now, but NFTs, the original NFTs are some of the ones that we thought might be most interesting were things like tokenized securities. Um, if you think about Harbor, if you know, some of your uh, listeners might remember like David Sachs, like company Harbor that was tokenizing securities and, and you know, ultimately putting real estate on, on public blockchains, right? And they've kind of created a standard around that. It was based there was on the, a whole, a whole idea, standard. Ryan, like where you, you'd be basically tokenize all of these houses and all of this real estate. And then you could go yep. long certain neighborhoods in, in San Francisco and short other neighborhoods. This was a very popular concept in 2017. And it's it's an amazing idea. And I think we will get there, but I think we'll get there last, right? So I, I think I was under the impression and, and, and I think I definitely uh, appreciated and, and thought that things like you know images uh, and digital art would probably be the toys that got adoption first, but the rip your face off rally and how fast that happened, I, I think it yeah, definitely took me by surprise. And it, it you know, basically uh, paved the way for a number of other innovative projects. The mental model um, that I have going forward with NFTs and why I think this is somewhat sustainable and importantly, why that sustainability will lead to the build out of the infrastructure layer is because I have the benefit of going back to 2013, which when I first got into Bitcoin and experiencing that first kind of vertical run up at its height, Bitcoin got to about $10 billion in market cap. So about one one thousandth of digital gold or sorry, of, of physical gold, digital gold got to, you know, one tenth of 1%. Um, and in this NFT run up, I'd say it's equally crazy and equally unsustainable. And most of these things are going to correct viciously probably down to zero because there's not going to be a bid for digital images that aren't seen as, as scarce or, or anyway valuable. What's interesting is the height that they hit 
was about one-tenth of one percent of the art market, right? So it, it kind of parallels Bitcoin in that way, right? Bitcoin was gold versus digital gold. Now we're talking about art versus digital art because the first NFT use case, even if things correct, you could have a 100x increase in market cap just for that sliver of the NFT market. And so knowing that, I think it paves the way for you know all types of interesting developments and, and all types of experiments that are actually going to stick. Um, and one of the easiest ways that you can imagine some of these things sticking is, is by using NFTs as a digital avatar, basically a digital proof of reputation, right? So digital art and visual uh, interpretations of, of NFTs, I, I think are, were the, the toy that we needed to get into something that's much more interesting, which I'd say is like community oriented NFTs. Um, this could be things like punks and, and apes that represent your full self, or more likely, they could be virtual badges that you start earning and become modular parts of your of, of your digital identity over time. So, you know, an NFT would be one, you know, packet or one credential that you have, or you know, one set of your your, your data IP, and your wallet would be like your kind of universal identifier. So, where NFTs go from here. Um, I think the sky is the limit, but you know, importantly, you have the wallet infrastructure. You have now conditioned people to think about you know the the visual nature of, of NFTs and process rarity just by looking at things, right? So you can basically take a resume uh, or take a set of experiences in the completely pseudonymous world, and you can visualize that using something like an avatar with a gold chain. Or you know, if my South Park avatar with the chalice starts shimmering because I've been around for a while and I'm considered a hashtag influencer, right? That's real, and you're going to be able to actually visually process that even in the digital realm. So I I think um, yeah, the, the amount of innovation that's going to unlock is is tremendous, and and because it will unlock so much value, you'll have more infrastructure that's built. You'll have all the services that help with things like the illiquidity of NFTs or how do you price them, or how do they actually become composable across different services or different blockchains? I think all that gets solved because of the potential market size. And then, you know, 10 years in the future, you will see uh, NFTs that represent real estate, but you're probably going to see NFTs for digital real estate first and all the <laughs> services that go around this. The metaverse always comes first, doesn't it? Uh, and part of Ethereum's big story is the rise of NFTs. So much of Ethereum's just activity was NFT denominated. And that brings us to what we want to talk to next, which is Ethereum's Q3 earnings report, uh, which is- Does this uh, look familiar? Uh, this does look familiar. This does look familiar. Yeah. So you started off this uh, section saying, I loved Bankless's Q3 update on Ethereum. Shout out to Ben, the author who wrote it. Uh, and you say, it's so freaking cool that we can produce earning reports for any crypto community without the need for any central corporate investor relations team. And we can do it over any arbitrary time period and update it in real time. We're talking about a 1,000x improvement in investor information symmetry here. And then you also uh, end with this rhetorical question. How would you value a company with this growth, uh, growth profile? And we've got the growth profile for Q3 Ethereum on screen. 
uh, just network revenue up 511%, uh, value settled up 400%, uh, Ether issuance down 30% since EIP 1559, active addresses up 24%, DeFi TVL up 1,200%, DEX volume up 300%, stablecoin issued up 400%, uh, and then I could go on. OpenSea sales just absolutely broke the metric, clocking in at 141,000%, basically going from, from zero to where it is. Uh, and so, Ryan, I'm going to ask you two things. Can you, can you just elaborate on uh, just the oh, what you said about the, the 1,000x improvement in investor information asymmetry here? And then I'm going to ask you, can you answer your own rhetorical question, which is, how do you value a company with this growth profile? Uh, so I'll, uh, well, I'll, I'll answer them in the order you asked. Uh, you know, I, I think um, what's interesting is this is not just about Ethereum. We actually produced a report like this for Compound as well, mm. and are starting to work with more communities on basically completely decentralized quarterly reporting and, and, and financial reporting. Um, and what's important about this is we don't need permission to do it, but we are prioritizing which communities we work with based on which communities are going to value this type of information symmetry, right? So you're basically a competitive bidder in like an open economy where, you know, we're essentially serving as Masari as, as like one of the big four accounting firms almost. Um, and you don't need any cooperation from the community. Now, if you have key influencers or, or key developers that are going to sanity check your work and, and, and answer questions like that's great. We want to be able to coordinate that. But the fact that we can do this all ourselves and be the primary author, not just the auditor of the primary author's claims is something that's fundamentally different about crypto. And, and I think um, something that we need to highlight much more of in the new year, us as a company, because it's a valuable service uh, for Masari, but I think also just in general, when we're talking to policymakers and, and trying to educate the masses. Yeah, because by, I mean, you, by you the way, you can't do this, this in private markets. You can't. This is the definition of investor protection, right? It's like crypto provides investor protection. How? Transparency. Anyone can audit this shit. Anyone can find out like the financial statements of any protocol out there, right? It's not siphoned off in silos, uh, you know, like wrapped in closed doors. Only executives know. This is mm -hmm. investor protection. Gary Gensler, if you're listening, this is how we do it around here, okay? And then, uh, Ryan, let's go to, with the uh, rhetorical question. How do you value a company with this kind of growth profile? Highly. And that's why Ethereum is a half trillion dollar asset. But here's the thing. This is not happening in a vacuum, right? And, and so this is, I think, the big question of this year, of next year, you know, um, where is value ultimately going to get captured in um, smart contract or you know, kind of virtual machine platforms? Um, is it going to be at the layer one? Is it going to be a combination of the layer one and layer two? Ultimately, um, is everything going to tie back to like the bare minimum that you're willing to spend on security? And, and then you're going to settle on one or two what would be considered like the most secured chains. I think it's too early to tell um, exactly how much value is, is going to get siphoned off or like what the real long-term multiple should be, right? So you look at some of the metrics for Ethereum and the value that's settled might continue to skyrocket. But if those are happening in like, if, if you have massive settlements that are like, layer two to layer one, and they're happening you know, in single blocks. Um, I'm not convinced that the transaction fee there needs to be more than 
you know, a basis point or a couple of basis points. And that's great if you're comparing it to the legacy. So you capture, you know, how, what's the, what's the equilibrium going to be, right? Um, where the miners and the stakers are properly incentivized and the security, you know, spend is high enough that, um, that, you know, the, the, the system works, whether it's Ethereum or, or, you know, some sub chain. Um, and I think the growth in transactions might skyrocket. The fees might continue to compress, both due to competition and more, you know, available, available resources. I haven't really seen anyone do a good job of, of thinking about like what the scalable lower bound is on fees, um, because everybody is is you know I think getting a little fat and happy right now on inflated fees that we know are are not going to persist forever, right? Because their their life will find a way and and people will find a way to route to lower cost alternatives. Um, so I think um, look, I'm I'm a, a buyer and a holder of of you know Ethereum at these levels and uh, continue to be bullish on Ether uh, and uh, some of the other layer ones. The, the question for me is really it's it's really always one of dominance, right? So Bitcoin dominance versus layer ones, and then Ether dominance versus other layer ones. Um, and uh, you know I uh, I certainly have not written off any of the other competitive chains, because I think different users are gonna make different trade-offs. And I can tell you as an entrepreneur and someone that's like signing off on, on expensive Ethereum transactions, something like Solana, you can actually test a product on, right? Like we can't even really economically test new products on Ethereum right now, given where things are. That will change. I know that some of those throughput uh, constraints are temporary, but um, I think uh, you know any, any discussion about valuation it's a multi-dimensional matrix that you're uh, you're, you're dealing with um, on a relative valuation and a kind of fundamental valuation standpoint. So let's talk about that because you have a section in your report around relative valuations of um, other layer ones, right? And so mm-hmm. if there were, as you said earlier, maybe two big breakouts for 2021, the first is NFTs, as you said, the second is block space, people buying mm-hmm. block space. We had Chris Dixon yep. on the podcast not too long ago. He said, I'm in the market for block space. I'm a net buyer, bullish on block space. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so we saw you've got this section about Solana Summer, and then you get into Polkadot. You talk about that a little bit and Cosmos uh, and uh, Terra with, with Luna and all of these alternative layer ones. And there's really, I think, this question that we're almost ending 2021. Uh, with that's kind of a question mark. It's like a, a TBD, right? So bullish block space, but what does the future world look like? Does it look, look like a multi-chain layer one world where you have all of these different layer ones? And I think you, t- you call this a little bit, maybe the, the technology platform argument, right? So in the, in the same way, we have like a Microsoft, we have, you know, Linux, we have a bunch of big, not Linux, but we have like Googles, we have a bunch of big Fang tech companies, right? Um, that's one way of looking at it versus maybe a sound money argument, which basically says, Hey, there's some network effect, power law rules and sound money is the basic, um, asset valuation of these things. And the asset valuation forms the economic security, and there's going to be big power law winners. And so you might have some big dominant layer ones, and then a, a smaller tail of, uh, of smaller alternative layer ones, if you will. What's your take on this? Because this is very much the big question of 2022. And 
you know, I think bankless listeners will kind of know the bankless take already, but what's your, what's your take that you provide in the thesis, Ryan? I think about it in terms of um, operating systems and, uh, and Ryan Watkins and our team, I think laid this out pretty, pretty nicely that there aren't very frequently three or four or five, or, you know, half dozen winning operating systems. It's usually a couple, right? Um, and there are um, economies of scale just in terms of like developing uh, new ecosystems and, and, and new kind of full tech stacks um, that I think it's tough to fragment across like three or four or five different standards. Um, now you don't want one because then everything's very fragile. So you know, maybe it's two or three. And the question becomes, um, I think not whether Ethereum is going to win, but you know, whether like basically who else is going to be important out of the other layer ones. And then will those ultimately become um, you know, the iOS or, or Android to the others, you know, wh whichever, right? So I, I don't know if I don't know if uh, Ethereum is iOS right now or uh, Solana's Android or something like that. But I, I think over time. Uh, there will be a, a couple of those standards. It's probably premature to call the race just yet. And um, and Ethereum is not without its risks right now. I think it has a massive head start, but as other ecosystems you know, begin to catch up because they're making different trade-offs, um, that's when we'll kind of start to understand where the where things will settle long-term and which ecosystems have the, stain, the, the uh, strongest staying power. I tend to think that the EVM is going to be one of the operating systems because so much has just already been built there. It would take something um, massively negative to um, to displace Ethereum and and the EVM in particular is one of the standards. So Ryan, we want to close out this conversation with our age-old spat of Ether. And uh, you gave us a, a shout-out in your top 10 people to watch as an honorable mention, saying a uh, special shout-out is in order to the Bankless duo, Ryan and David, so thank you for that. Who have been right about ETH, but we do not make the cut because you think that we have been right for the wrong reasons. What are those reasons, Ryan? What, 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 what reasons are we wrong about? At this point, I think it's kind of a semantic argument, um, and the, uh, the, the, you know, the the ETH is money meme and the ultrasound money meme. Um, you know, I think uh, look, you guys have been on the mark, uh, and I'm glad that in December of last year, I uh, I reversed some of my Zcash thesis and, and kind of redeployed it in, into Ethereum. Um, I, I I still am long Zcash and uh, and and think it's just a massively important project. But um, it was pretty clear, you know, towards the end of last year that um, that this was going to be a big year for Ethereum, and I underestimated how big it was going to be for some of the other layer ones. Um, I, you know, should have indiscriminately bought all of them, but uh, you know, right now, I, I, I at the end of last year, I was bullish on Luna, uh, Terra, and um, and Ethereum, and so that certainly has played out. But um, you know, I think um, I think the Ethereum community uh, in general. Um, could learn something from uh, from from uh, Suzu's rant about uh, you know I've abandoned Ethereum and I know this was like the 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 big story like a couple of weeks ago and, and everyone was you know going back and forth and it, it was still feels Twitter, like the so big Larry, story Larry doesn't it? I, I don't know you guys hold a grudge so um, <laughs> but uh, the, I think. Um, I mean, he's he's right, right? You know, uh, I think 
the it's important that people don't get satisfied when they're in build mode and recognize that when something is is structurally broken speed to fix is not something that should be taken lightly or, or, or not treated seriously. And that's not to say that the Ethereum developers and, and all the folks that are, are spending so much time on the merge and, and layer two scaling and interoperability of these different shards, like that they're not like working fast enough or, or, or trying hard enough. Um, but I do think it is uh, something that should keep people uh, humble and questioning assumptions because he is right in the sense that new people do not give a fuck about decentralization by and large, right? Like the, the religious zealots, the libertarian crowd, the anarchist, like the world is going to end crowd. Like we've been in for 10 years locked into this because it makes a lot of sense and it kind of fits our worldview and thesis. The people that are coming in for NFTs, the people that are going to play in the metaverse and the people that are going to want this as an alternative to financial services for whatever reason, they're underbanked or think that they can get a better deal. They do not care about the back end. So if they see the headline fees and they're too high, they're going to go elsewhere. And I think that's a problem, right? I think you want sustainability in both directions and, and you want a secure system that, that you know, is, uh, is going to operate in that upper right quadrant. Ryan, uh, at risk of being considered a religious zealot, do you know what I have to say to people that don't care about decentralization? There we go. Wait, did that just come through on the Zoom? Good. Okay, cool. Yes, it did. <laughs> I actually think so. Uh, th this is a whole other podcast we could have, and we probably should have uh, in the future, Ryan, about sort of um, Ethereum's path forward. But but one thing I think to, to look for, to see if, to validate the bankless thesis in 2022 is this whole idea around modular blockchains and what we call ultra-scalable Ethereum. So this year is maybe the year people figured out that ETH is ultra-sound money, okay? As a meme, again, right? So like not unpacking all that that means. I don't think we've seen the last word from Ethereum on scalability. In fact, mm -hmm. uh, I think Ethereum is taking the, the patient approach, but also the right approach with its modular design and layer twos coming on board. So we'll see. I feel like we're kind of, kind of somewhat between like Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. All right. So like, we'll see. <laughs> and then maybe we'll, we'll talk and evaluate this in another year. And then maybe we uh, maybe we make your top ten list next year of, yeah. of people to watch if we're right about ultra scalable Ethereum and uh, our thesis around layer twos, or maybe not. This industry always surprises, and there's definitely a lot to learn. Uh, what I will say, Ryan, is we definitely appreciate you guys being in the space. I think Masari is just a, a voice of reason, a voice of of, of, of truth Leadership. in an industry with so much bag bias. I think you guys do a great job staying uh, neutral. And uh, just you know, reporting things and and analyzing things with a lot of integrity. So we we definitely appreciate it, and thank you for putting this thesis together once again. It's great to have you on Bankless, Ryan. Thank you guys for having me. And uh, I guess uh, if I'm going to see you before a year, it's probably going to be for the flipping episode, where I imagine <laughs> I'm going to have to rent a dunk tank for right behind me. <laughs> Uh, just, just on the off chance, the 20% chance that you guys are right. Uh, but I'm, I'm not banking on it. So. I will personally yeah. fly out to throw the balls at the dunk tank. <laughs> yeah. And make sure Udi's there too. And a few <laughs> others, I think. Anyway, guys, crypto is always fun, of course. And Ryan, thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope you learned a bit about the, uh, the thesis today. Action item for you today is download 
Ryan's crypto thesis for 2022. We'll include a link in the show notes. That's you can find that at masari.io slash crypto hyphen thesis hyphen four hyphen 2022. If that sounds too complicated, just click the link in the show notes. Risks and disclaimers, guys, of course, crypto is risky. Bitcoin is risky. ETH is risky. We legitimately don't know what's going to happen in 2022. Okay. This is our best guess, but we don't know. You could lose what you put in, but we are headed West. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Hey, we hope you enjoyed the video. If you did, head over to Bankless HQ right now to develop your crypto investing skills and learn how to free yourself from banks and gain your financial independence. We recommend joining our daily newsletter, podcast, and community as a Bankless Premium subscriber to get the most out of your Bankless experience. You'll get access to our market analysis, our alpha leaks, and exclusive content, and even the Bankless token for airdrops, raffles, and unlocks. If you're interested in crypto, the Bankless community is where you want to be. Click the link in the description to become a Bankless Premium subscriber today. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the channel for in-depth interviews with industry leaders, Ask Me Anythings, and weekly roll-ups where we summarize the week in crypto and other fantastic content. Thanks everyone for watching and being on the journey as we build out the